Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. I'll put it like this. That's the way it works in America. Pacifica host, political analyst, and contributor to this show, Garland Nixon, connects the dots when it comes to ISIS, Al-Qaeda, weapons of mass destruction, and lying us into wars. And I am, oh, there we go. I got some sound. There we go. I couldn't hear myself. It's kind of weird. I don't know, you know, a lot of people can do radio shows when they can't hear their own voice through the headphones. And I guess I've just been doing it for so long. It feels weird, feels out of place. And so I got myself in the headphones all ready to go, ready to make it happen, ready to have some fun, ready to raise some cane here. Um, I wonder where that came from, raise cane. Maybe that's like the whole cane and Abel thing. I don't know, whatever. Maybe it's sugar cane. Who knows? Um, now let's talk, let's talk about something. We're talking foreign policy today. Usually I'm all over the place, but today I'm going to talk specifically, specifically about foreign policy because I find Americans so interesting when it comes to foreign policy. Very, very interesting when it comes to foreign policy because it's like this to me. So, uh, Joe Biden gave a speech at the UN, um, Vladimir Zelensky, he's been running off at the yap all over the place lately. The support for the Ukraine conflict is waning, and uh, we're going into an election year, and I'm hoping we don't all get nuked. Can I throw that one in there? Can I throw that last sentence? I'm hoping we don't all get nuked, and that's a you know big hope of mine because, let's face it, it'd be kind of hard for me to do the radio show under those circumstances. So let's talk about what's happening, and especially, you know what I love? Here's something I love. I love it when people who disagree with me call. I had a guy call last week, and oh, man, it was at the end of the show, and he was disagreeing with me, and I'm like, man, that's good stuff. I love, because I like to, I don't think, uh, not in a, I like a debate, but not in a negative way. I like a constructive debate, you know, where the two people who are debating aren't enemies, where they're not angry, where they're not trying to win, where they're just submitting information and data to each other and honestly evaluating it, right? They're not just, hey, I got to hurry up and finish what you have to say so that I can get to what I have to say. That's not a debate, you know, that's just a, like a stonewalling kind of thing. So at any rate, uh, particularly if you disagree with me, that's wonderful because it allows me to elaborate on my points and allows you to elaborate on your points. But even if you don't. So where are we now as far as the U Ukraine, as far as Ukraine? Let me say this. I got to start off with this. I find Americans really interesting, really, in a weird and gullible kind of way. You know, I have friends, you know, me, I'm pretty much consistent. People get mad at me. People get mad at me because the government says X and I always say I don't trust it. The government says, hey, Garland, it's four o'clock. I'm looking at my watch because I don't trust it if they say it's four o'clock. If the mainstream, if the ruling elite, if the people in power say X, I'm looking at Y because I don't trust it. But the, the, automatically, rea in a reactionary way, I don't trust them because of their history. So I know people, I, I give example, I always go back to this, weapons of mass destruction during Iraq. I know people that I argued with back then that I said, number one, I don't believe that Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. And number two, even if he does, the United States does not have the authority to go around the world pointing at particular countries saying, hey, that country over there has weapons of mass destruction. And conveniently, they happen to have a lot of oil, too. But that's not important now. It's weapons of mass destruction. We got to go in there and get that oil. Oh, weapons of mass destruction immediately. Right. I had people parroting that I knew friends parroting the the government propaganda. Well, you know, if we don't fight Saddam over here, we're going to have to fight him over over there. We have to fight him here. And I'm like, but he don't even have a Navy. How's he going to get here? Yeah, he could fire this drone. Literally on TV, they had this thing showing this wooden drone. Right. Which was like looked like a, a model airplane from when I was a kid. And they had this on TV, and they said he could, theoretically, he could put his some kind of a poisonous substance on here, fly it over off from offshore the east from the east coast, fly it over a city, and spray it on us, and we'd be poisoned. I literally saw this on the news, and I'm thinking, well, that would be great, but how well, how's he going to get off the east coast when he don't have a navy, right? But they didn't. That wasn't important at the time. It was we got stuff for the suckers to believe 
And what they know is all you got to do is wave a flag, bake some red, white, and blue cookies, say, go America. Oh, by the way, there's an evil country over there we need to go to war with. And about 90% of the people in America go, yeah, that evil country, yeah. I'm glad our country, we're going in there to bring democracy and independence and sovereignty and all that stuff. That's all they got to do because Americans are such suckers. It's, I, I mean, I put it like this. Somebody steals my wallet today. Am I going to go hang out with them tomorrow? No, I'm not. Why? Because they're a wallet thief. I've already established. They don't have to steal my wallet five times in a row before I understand they're a thief and I can't leave my wallet around them, right? Makes sense. Most people would find that logical, right? Sensible. But when it comes to foreign policy, the government can lie to them nine times in a row. And the tenth time they'll get mad at me when I remind them that they got lied to the last nine times in a row. How about, how about uh, 1991, the United States wanted to go to war with who? Iraq under George H.W. Bush. But they had very low approval ratings. So what did they do? They went and they got one of these. I'm sitting right here on K Street. They went and they got one of these K Street um, public relations firms and they cooked up a lie. And they brought this woman in and she went before Congress and she said, oh, I was in Kuwait. And the Iraqi soldiers came in and they pulled babies out of incubators and threw them on the floor so they could so they could take the incubators back to Baghdad. And shortly after that, guess what happened? The support for the war went up to 60 percent and they had their war. And you know what we find out later? The woman was like the Kuwaiti ambassador's daughter. It was all a lie. The whole thing was a lie. Nobody was charged criminally, but they should have. They lied us into a war. Ten years later, they lied us into a war with weapons of mass destruction. But here's what I know. When Ukraine came around, you think they're telling the truth? Do you really think that every other time they lied? But this time they're – see, that's the way it works in America. Every time people get mad at me, every time we start another war, and I say, talk to me in five years. Five years later, they're like, you know, Garland, you know, perhaps in hindsight you had something there. And I'm like, I am not some kind of a soothsayer. I can't read the future. All I know is this. If you lie to me nine times in a row, you're probably lying the tenth time. But unfortunately in America, Americans will believe them the tenth. And then six, five years later, they'll figure out they've been had. What people don't know, let me just give a, a quick history lesson to America. How did all this ISIS and al-Qaeda start? I will tell you how it started. In the 1970s, Afghanistan was one of the most modern countries in, in, in the Muslim world. Women That's could right. go to school. They could wear That's regular right. clothes. Everything was perfectly normal. The problem was they were friends with the Soviet Union, but their country was stable. They had good jobs. Everything was going right. well. What did the United right. States do under Zbigniew Brzezinski and Jimmy Carter? They started financing these crazy jihadists, these ISIS-type people so they could destabilize Afghanistan and draw Russia into a war in Afghanistan. That's when all of this ISIS, al-Qaeda stuff started. The United States deliberately started it to destabilize Afghanistan. Then, when Afghanistan, the war started, the United States then brought in Osama bin Laden. They financed him. They armed him. They trained him. They helped build out. They called them the Mujahideen, the spirit warriors. They worked with the Pakistani intelligence. And they made them bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually, they ended up all over the place, all over Africa. And you know what? I believe to this date, the United States is still in many parts of the Middle East and Africa still arming and right. supporting right. these jihadists right. so they can right. destabilize the region and then say, oh, we're just here to fight the terrorists. And coming up next on Arts Express, stand-up comic actress and author Madison Malloy sits down to talk some No Laughing Matter moments about her weird journey from Wall Street to comedy on stage and a different sort of standing up to canceling the culture cops, especially as a woman speaking her mind, and how, quote, if we lose comedy, we're going to just lose the joy. Here's Madison Malloy. 
As I'm getting older though, I'm becoming extremely envious of hookers. Okay, yeah. They're getting paid to do exactly what I do for free. I'm like, that's not fair, because their is over here making bank, my is over here operating as a nonprofit organization. <laughs> My dad does my taxes. Hey, how are you? Okay, hello and welcome to our show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. Okay. <laughs> now, your very unusual life journey has been described in part as Wall Street analyst to stand-up comic. What can you say about those unusual experiences for you and how the first career led you into the second one? Yeah, so I, when I was very young, my dream was just to be filthy rich. And uh, so I figured that the best way to get there would be through Wall Street. And when I got there, I realized, uh-oh, this is not what I had imagined. This is, this is not my dream. And uh, decided to go jump into a brief stint as uh, running an e-commerce as an entrepreneur working for Sweat Equity. And after that didn't work out for various reasons, I decided, you know what, life's too short. I'm going to go follow my dream and my passion, which was to make people laugh. And uh, I felt as a comedian, um, I could get away with saying more inappropriate things. Because if you're not a comedian, people look at you like crazy. But if you say something, but you're a comedian, they think you think of you as funny. So I felt that was kind of a natural uh, progression. But I didn't realize, I didn't really do my due diligence, so to say, about the career. And I didn't realize what a long, <clears throat> difficult road it would be, but highly rewarding. And um, after going through my own struggles and being able to finally get out of my own way and live a more enjoyable life, I decided to write this book. And what could you say about your book, A Self-Help Guide? With a side of humor, we can't. This is radio. We can't say the title on the air. <laughs> yeah, so it's time to light me uh, bleep up. Um, just type in my name to Amazon; it'll pop right up. <laughs> <laughs> the easiest way to find it, so you guys could get kind of get get your hands on it. Um, but this is a it's a self help self help guide with a side of humor. And it really goes through everything from freeing your finances, freeing your mind, stop being offended, stop judging others, create an amazing new reality, um, time to improve your relationships, kind of everything we need to be successful in life. It's not just about career or friends or family. It's about really everything, kind of creating that, that whole circle. And um, it's raw. It's unfiltered. It's funny. It is a book that I feel that people will enjoy. It's got some of my backstory in it, so you could, so people can relate to, um, you know, how I was getting in my own way and how I was able to get out of my own way. So I like to say it's honest, unfiltered self-help. And your embrace of doing comedy, you've characterized as quote doing stand-up in a woke world. Please elaborate, and especially uh, any confrontation with cancel culture. So luckily, I haven't been canceled yet, maybe because I'm not famous enough. But, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's making comedians' jobs very difficult, and their job is already difficult enough. And I have a whole chapter in my book. It's called Time to Stop Being Offended. And it talks about when you are offended, what it physically does to your body as well, like your heart races, you feel crappy. It's, it's just not good, Okay. So, and also when, when you get offended, you're kind of choosing to be offended. You're choosing to personalize whatever was said to you. And doing comedy in a woke world is, is crazy because I just don't know why anyone who's easily offended would, first of all, go to a comedy club, okay? Um, so if you're going to a comedy club and, you can, and you're easily offended, it might not be the best place for you. But if you're somewhat offended and you want to go to a comedy club and maybe you're going to see a specific act and their opening act might say something that you find offensive. What I really want to say is those jokes have been done and worked out, and that joke was not about you. It was not written with you in mind. So don't personalize it because it's not about you. And if we lose comedy, we're going to just 
lose the joy that it brings and just living a lighter, freer, happier, healthier life. So let's let's not uh, let's stop being so offended. Would be my message. And as a Wall Street veteran, what advice do you have for those you left behind there, funny or not funny, to survive the looming recession? So um, a lot of the people I know have been through this before. We went through it in 2008, and uh, hopefully it was a wake-up call for a lot of people. And I talk about finances in my book. Uh, I think it's very critical. There's actually two, two chapters on it. Um, you know, I say to people, first of all, like, you know, having financial freedom will set you free, okay? You don't, you're not so restricted by everything. And uh, I find that a lot of people, you know, will buy stuff to impress others. Nobody really cares. If, you, if, if you're buying something to impress somebody, stop buying it. Buy it because it genuinely makes you happy. And don't be afraid of getting a side job. There's nothing wrong with a side job. There's nothing wrong with picking up extra income. And there's so many ways to make more passive income. So try to get yourself where you can save 20% of your monthly income. And once you do that, you're going to get excited and try to get to 22 to 25. And it might not be okay. It might say, well, you know, my, my, my monthly expenses are this, and I'm only taking home this. So, Madison, you're nuts to think, that I can save 20% of this. I mean, we've got inflation, we've got all this stuff. That's true. You could pick up a side gig and you could say, okay, well, I'm taking home X, 20% of X is this. All right, how many hours on the side could I work to get that? And so you can do the 20% that way as well. There's so many great avenues. You can set up an online store. You can create stuff on Etsy uh, or on Canva and then sell it on Etsy or Pinterest. You can sell pictures of your feet. You can do other inappropriate things I won't mention, but people are making a killing. Um, just so many different ways. And, and YouTube is so, so educational when it comes to finances. So I always say um, save your money. Actually, don't save it. Invest it. Invest your money and let it grow for you. And also don't live in fear because what people – with this upcoming recession, people think, oh, my gosh, the world's falling apart. Eggs are so expensive. Gas is so expensive. What's going to happen? That The real estate's crashing again. Mo the biggest wealth is created during a recession. So really educate yourself and figure out where you can create massive opportunity because the whole world's on sale when you go to the market. That's what I would say. And what are your thoughts about the way there's been physical assaults against comics lately, Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle, and especially fears as a woman? Yeah, so I don't have too much fear for me personally because my comedy is just, I feel like it doesn't, it doesn't really trigger people that way. Um, but yeah, you, you always have, you just don't know what's going to happen and you always have to be vigilant. I mean, I've been back in New York City promoting the book, and obviously crime is up 66% here. And it's a very different city from when I left uh, during COVID. And so I think it's just important to be vigilant, um, be aware of your surroundings. But also, if you feel like something's going to trigger somebody or could cause a negative reaction, alter it or maybe just leave it out. But at the same time, I think it's the club's job to amp up security because it's their job to really keep the artist safe. Okay, thank you so much, Madison Malloy, for calling into the show. Well, thank you. I appreciate you, and I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Bye. And more information about Madison Malloy and what she's up to on and off stage is online at madisonmalloy.com. Hey, buenos días, Pedro. ¿Quieres que te corte el pelo? la frontera de los Estados Unidos. Whenever I'm in New York, I'm Tommy Chong. I kind of created Cheech and Chong, and I live in the Arctic Express. 
man, stop. Because it's the only show that really tells you what's going on. Express in the writer's corner, I was on my way to a mill town. Blue collar wordsmith Miguel Gardel reads from his short story, Religious, a life journey navigating factories and the shoes of bankers, a shot of tequila, Kerouac, capitalism, layoffs, poetry, and the blues. And how, quote, we are poets going and on our way. Miguel Gardel here. I'm going to read you my latest story. It's called Religious. She was raven-haired with Italian and Arab blood. The blood of immigrants come to a town of bankers, of factories, of many tongues. She could speak two of them. She was a secretary, bilingual, in one of the mills. It was a town of mills. Mills made me think of Don Quixote. She wrote about them, about the mills. Not those kinds of mills, she told me. Molinos de viento, no. Places where one labors, she said. To me, that was scary, but one must. It was a town of toil. There was a monkey hanging upside down on a string, on a nail in the threshold. She was a believer, she said, and had written of all the tears and the years unloved. She had a dying husband, a growing son, but always hopeful. Come on over, she wrote. So you with your cousins at Carnival? Ooh, Caribbean fun, I know. Come on over, great postcard. I stopped in New York on my way to her. A sort of gig and I read for drinks over in the village, El Café para los Poetas de Nueva York. I was having a shot of tequila by the bar and the woman with the baby carriage with a baby in it, who had read one very long and powerful poem, came up and slid a note into my closed hand. I have forgotten you existed, it said. She said nothing and pushed the stroller away and disappeared into the crowd. And I read the note again and again. And I sipped the tequila slowly in the night, a friend took me to listen to a local merengue band in Corona, Queens. I saw Yvonne, Eddie's sister, on the dance floor. I hadn't seen her in years. She was shy but did come over, and we danced. She said she had married and divorced. I told her I was on my way to a mill town. She knew of my existence and thought me weird for sending her poems back in junior high. The town was in Massachusetts. The monkey was made of felt. The bus ride was seven hours. She waited to greet me. We talked about the Dominican carnival and of her husband's passing. The writer you like 
It's in the same cemetery, she said, and we pay tribute to both men. One had inspired me, the other one a musician I never met. We recalled how the writer once picked cotton in California, and we agreed I'd have to get a job in one of the mills. Her apartment was very quiet. The landlord lives upstairs, she said. In his room, the son had fishes in a beautifully clean and colorful tank. And she said, you think you can write here? I said I would try, but I had to work and didn't try. I asked about the monkey. The monkey is holy, she said. We drank wine and did not have sex. She was a true believer. Her son was seven and did not like me. He misses his father, she said, but I want him over in days. An old guitar she had in a closet. I taught him some blues chords. I made up simple lyrics and he began to forget he missed his father. The father had been a drinker, but he was nice to the boy, she said. Brought home gifts. Though he was rarely home, she said, so the boy missed the gifts. I had nothing to give but words. He was appreciative, strummed the guitar, blues, I told him. He would remember. After two months, she said I had to leave because after one week, she said I had to marry her. It's my religion, she said. You cannot live here with me if you don't marry me. She said it was disrespectful to the monkey, but I knew no one in town. I had not made friends at the mill. Fine, she said. It's all right. You can stay a while. It was a giant mill, tall and imposing. It chewed up leather and spat out pairs of shoes by the thousands. Trucks took the shoes away. They were the shoes of the bankers. One month after my arrival, an incredible thing happened. Too many shoes had been produced. There were just so many shoes the bankers could sell and be sold. So they stopped the mill. Everybody go home, the foreman yelled at us workers. Go home. We'll call you. Too many shoes. The bankers will find a way to sell them, but it'll take a while. We'll let you know. Go home. When the boy asked me what was I going to do, I said I was going to write down words, and he looked bewildered. He had heard the word poem, but not poet. A poet is an artist, I said. All poets are artists. All artists are poets. Poet is a nice word, so is poem. It means anything good and strange. And if it's strange and bad, the poet, because he is original, will make it good. Poem has rhythm, seems to be going somewhere. The poet goes but never gets there. The poem may be, but not the poet. The poet is always going, getting on, on his way, or just arriving. And we may all be poets. Sometimes we know it, sometimes we feel it, sometimes we are. Some of us take it, accept it, and go. We go and be poets. We are poets going and on our way. I did a little dance, and the boy giggled.
the music you've been listening to is Caribe, composed and performed by Dominican jazz musician Michel Camilo, and Miguel Gardel's short stories have been published in Impossible Voice, Red Fez, and other publications. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with a Memory Lane Gallery tour by the artist as a young man long ago, where he's been and where he's going. A collection of paintings and collages titled People and Politics. Hi, I'm Peter Wise, and this is my uh, show from Stardust. It's a collection of um, paints and uh, paintings, oil paintings and collages, and one 3D piece. So um, I'd like to just take you around and look at all the works and maybe say something about them. And um, of course, if you have any questions, the public voice will be John McLeod, who's producing and filming this. The show is called People in Politics, and the picture should be self-evident as to the theme, although it's not completely clear, I guess. Okay, so why don't we start and just uh, look at it one by one, and if I can remember the titles, I might be able to remember something about them. Okay. So, hello, hello, hello. This is the first painting, it's called uh, Untitled. That's not too hard to forget. It's um, based on a um, photograph by a French photographer whose name I still don't remember. Uh, it was shot in about 1952. I think what I was trying to do was just text texturalize it because it's a very central body, obviously. You get an interplay between the, uh, the texture of the flesh and, and the sheet or the blanket there in a square format. Just a study, nothing great. Uh, let's see, the second one is a collage, or well, actually mixed media. It's called Public Scrutiny. And I, I don't know if you can pick this up on the camera, but the upper figure is a, a picture by uh, Robert Maplethorpe of Patti Smith. And below is this your generic Playboy bunny, and then it's overlaid with newspaper and transfer and gold and plexiglass. And obviously the idea of public scrutiny was the idea of stardom. And, and uh, the, Patty Starr is sort of a superstar. And of course the generic Playboy bunny is a superstar as a class. And I thought as a genre. As a genre, right. So um, I want to get the idea of penetration and this whole plexiglass sort of really did that, that trick pretty well. And it also has sort of a, a Japanese, uh, I think a Japanese feel to it, like a gong, <laughs> like the gong show, like people beating things. And um, I don't know, actually it's, it sort of worked out. I wasn't going to put it in the show, but everybody else liked it, so I put it in. Yes, interesting. Um, thanks. Interesting. Yeah, okay. And below it is, uh... Well, let's see if we can give it up. Look at that. Give. You can see all the scratches on the plexiglass because I couldn't afford glass. An idea of the space, really. Looks like. There's a lot of silver and gold paint scratched through on it. And there's all sorts of transfers below it. But these things sort of evolve by themselves once you get started. They never end up the way they're supposed to. Fortunately, I guess. Collage is a spontaneous art. Okay, now we're down here. Now we're at uh, Letters from Underground, which I uh, mistitled on the list of works, but that's okay. This is part of uh, six, six collages, all dealing with the references of the letters and the connotations with the different letters of the Phoenician alphabet. At least my personal ones, anyway. And I guess they're sort of self-explanatory if the camera picks up the images. Z being the end of all, of course. The end of the road. The last railroad station. I wanted to uh, uh, express something different about Warhol than was different from the general attitude in that he was actually a very strong person and he worked very hard to get to where he was. So I used the Slavic features to exaggerate that. And uh, this was Andy at the height of his commercialism. Not my favorite time, but it's, it was an awful good picture. I adapted it from that. Okay, next is uh, a piece of, uh, it's oil on foam core, uh, which is an interesting medium to work with because you can layer a lot. You can do all the academic kind of uh, varnishing and layering of paints. That was a time-consuming thing. And the name of it's Amish E.J. Balak. E.J. Balak was a photographer in uh, New Orleans at the turn of the century. 
And uh, they actually made a movie about him starring Brooke Shields, and I always get the title wrong. John, Pretty Baby. Pretty Baby, right? And E.J. Balak like, had a trapezoid-shaped head and was four feet tall. He was sort of a weird person. But on his off time from the shipyards in New Orleans, being a technical designer, he uh, went over to Storyville and eventually lived there. And Storyville is a red light district in New Orleans. And uh, he did portraits of all the prostitutes in the houses that he lived in. Eventually, uh, according to the movie anyway, marrying one of them. Uh, I, I, I think and how tall was he? Well, he's about, well, he's probably taller than four feet, but I don't think... They probably was. ended up dubbing it Short Storyville. <laughs> short Story. <laughs> or Toulouse Lautrecville, something like that. Hilaire, though. Was it Hilaire? No, it's not Hilaire. It's uh, Saint Hilaire. EJ. EJ. Timothy Saint Saint Hilaire. And here's another French national hero, Marcel Proust, Collage. Um, The idea on him is uh, Proust is really the uh, center of French culture, as far as I'm concerned, and everything works out from him, from there. So there's a modernist treatment as one of the initiators of literary modernism. Everything is built on him, and there's a field of French abstraction from the 1950s that has these real solid dark forms and sort of generic. So I built that around him. He's sort of a, I don't know, a foundation of French culture anyway. My favorite author, that's for sure. And if you have a couple of years, you can always read one of his books. <laughs> if you got a lot of leisure, that is. Um, this is one of my first titles. It's called Summer. It's been titled about and retitled about 95 times. It's oil on linen, actually. Um, it's actually taken from a photograph of Virginia Woolf and Angelica Bell, who was her daughter, no, her niece, excuse me. Uh, she was the daughter of Vanessa Bell, who was uh, Virginia's sister and a great painter, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, anybody who's ever been to England in the summer probably will know the feeling of this painting because it's warm and, and uh, rural and uh, constably, I guess. I don't know. I thought it was a real nice photograph, so I did a picture of it. I think it's as loose as I get in terms of my painting. Okay. Jim Morrison, oil on panel. Um, Did that right after seeing Oliver Stone's movie. Of course, it brought back a lot of memories of those wonderful years. And uh, I think what Stone was trying to do with the film, I was sort of trying to do with the painting, but there was that, that that, that double feeling for Morrison of the artist and the renegade. Plus, he was a pretty sensitive guy. <laughs> Believe it or not, I think so. And um, so he had this continual struggle between one side and the other, and I tried to get that in the painting. Unfortunately, it's framed really badly, which I'll change someday. But uh, it's really not an important picture. It's just my homage to Jim Morrison. And this is Barbara over here, my wife. Uh, it ended up looking like a Tennessee Williams player, a William Faulkner novel, but. It's one of my one of my few good photographs I think I've ever done. She really isn't an idiot. Uh, yeah, thinking of Steinbeck. No, 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 not Steinbeck. No, Fox. I was joking. But when you said she really isn't an idiot, ah, I was. Well, yeah, there was Nathan Steinbeck too, but there's an idiot in uh, Faulkner as well. Of course. Which Sound of the Fury, Benji. You know, and. Uh, but he never was institutionalized, as far as I know. I mean, that was the feeling of this. That, that was. Oh, really? Else. I don't. I don't get that. I you get, don't get that. What do no, you get from it? I get yeah, New England bed and breakfast out of that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> okay, here's another one of EJ Bullock. Oops, no, that's Just not one of EJ Bullock's prostitutes. Get, uh, this is. This is adapted from an EJ Bullock picture, and it's called. Uh, the enthronement of socialism. So it's a allegorical picture. I really, uh, I really like Audrey Flack's early work, anyway, with her rich and lush colors, and and I think a lot of that influenced this. Um, well, you can take this picture the way you want it. You know the title. You're looking at it. Don't I have to pay for it before I take it? <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Um, where are we going now? We keep going back to you because we just want to keep uh, oh, okay. keep everybody an idea of the scale of... Oh, yeah. Well, that last one was oil on canvas, by the way. I, I'm supposed to say that. And this is another collage. This is the second version of another collage. Um, obviously, it's about Kent State, which I think this image is engraved on everybody's memory, at least mine, permanently. 
Uh, I think what I was trying to say was, I mean, part of the failure of the anti-war movement was also the failure of the anti-war movement to take in hand that it wasn't just the war that the people were, should have been against, it was also racism. Right. And there's a division here between the two, because we could have had real social change to actually had the war continued, because the element of racism would have eventually uh, been wed to the element of the anti-war movement. So there was always this division, this dichotomy in the revolutionary movement. And unfortunately, um, both sides paid the price, as did America, I think. When I see that photograph, I think about where I was when Kennedy was shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this isn't John F. K. In fact, nobody remembers this guy's name, unfortunately. But I do, and below it is, uh, this isn't a political picture, it's just a picture about Virginia Woolf. Um, it's a collage, obviously, and this figure was, uh, was put onto plexiglass and overlaid over the initial collage to get a 3D effect, I guess. It's just parts and fragments of her life, of her consciousness, and that's what she used to write about. But, um, I don't know. <laughs> Next. Next, uh, oil on panel. This is called Love in a Vacuum. I, I think it carries forward the theme of, uh, of the Kent State one in the, in the sense that uh, the people that were in the, uh, in the quote, the anti-war revolutionary movement, especially at this time, 1968, um, were really pariahs from, from a society, but they're pariahs to themselves too, hence the title. Uh, there was a lot of confusion in the movement as well as outside the movement. And I tried to capture that. Also, it was beneficial. We had a show called Equus going on at the same time. <laughs> so there's a little referential thing there. I think that's like one of my most successful oils. Uh, above here is another collage, but I guess you could call it mixed media. Uh, it's worked in with uh, saran wrap, which has been sprayed with gold paint and scratched through with magic markers and things, uh, all sorts of different things. It's called Brown Mao. It's really a takeoff on Warhol's Mao, who was famous in the, that picture was famous in the 60s, obviously. And of course, the pun. Yes. <laughs> which should we make? No, we that, no, we shouldn't make the no. We shouldn't make the pun. But it's an elegy for Mao. I mean, it's a serious elegy. It's not saying that Mao is a product anymore. It's revisionism. And the next one's sort of a nondescript uh, uh, collage, really uh, influenced by Jim Ng's work. Just a placement of a number, which means absolutely nothing. But people think, what is that number doing there? So it makes. So they linger thing. over it. Well, number nine. I mean, obviously the Beatles song. So it doesn't mean absolutely nothing. No, it doesn't mean absolutely nothing. And it's, and it's it also a the deliberate emotional response from the viewer. Well, yeah, but that so would be really, pretty contrived, you know? Well, it is contrived. <laughs> but it's not meant to be contrived. It shouldn't be contrived. It's meant to be ambiguous. Uh, ambiguous, yeah, yeah. So yeah. in the That's its not function... Contrived. But its function in the collage is predetermined, so in that sense, it's contrived. Well, yeah, I mean, I could have selected any other number but nine, that's true. And nine has a connotation of the Russian nine, which means no. And I think a lot of the, and of course the, the feeling the, in this is no, because of nihilism and, and so it, on and so forth. Okay, next is an oil on a canvas. It's called, um, it's not called anything at all because it's a, just a semantic picture, really. I wanted to take a, a picture all the way through the photographic process and then, and then paint it so I could think that I created the entire thing from the start to finish. And this was, this was actually a wall that was uh, in Iowa City in 1990. And it's a little neighborhood uh, which uh, probably had more sandinistas per, uh, per, square of, per square foot or square <laughs> inch than uh, Nicaragua per, itself. Per capita. And I just thought it was a terrific statement, and I wanted to paint it because it was an eloquent, uh, it was an eloquent uh, phrase about the history of Nicaragua and how it's been repressed by the United States government, which is our country, of course, is what <laughs> two hundred fifty times the size of Nicaragua, yeah, so. a million times richer. And uh, of course, John Q. Public probably passes by that every day and doesn't think anything about it, but. Uh, John Q. Dodge. Yeah, John Q. Dodge, Plymouth, whatever. And it had these beautiful flowers overhanging, which just set off the whole phrase terrifically. Because it was romantic and poetic. And I don't think it's that great a picture, but at least I know it's mine. And this is the tree I didn't create for this exhibition. 
Okay, this is a diptych collage, and it's uh, pretty complicated. I don't even know if I can explain it myself. Um, it's called Worker's Playtime. And if you look at the imagery, um, I use uh, Diana Alton's uh, imagery quite a bit. Of course, nobody remembers Diana Alton, but she's one of the people who was killed in the New York uh, tenement explosion in 1970. Uh, she's part of Weatherman faction. She's sort of a saint to me. And uh, I think the connotation of Worker's Playtime really is the currency of revolution. I think you... I was striving to get a feeling of counterfeit plates and things like that. And the currency revolution is sloganeering. There's a lot to do with sex and death. Um, here's a wanted poster of Bernadine Dorn, who was one of the survivors of Weatherman, still alive as far as I know. Uh, it was more about women in the movement because the, the revolution along with, or uh, I really couldn't call it a revolution, but the, the movement itself along with racism had the other important issue of, of women's rights and women's identities. And it's really about that, how women's identities have been subverted. And uh, Alton and Dorn obviously wanted to reverse that. And there's the uh, generic Chinese propaganda poster, Maoist propaganda poster. The woman, as she sees herself, I think, would like to see herself, at least at that time, of uh, hardworking and not oppressed. So that's, I don't know, there's a lot more going on in that, but that's all I want to talk about. Uh, obviously, we're on the political side of this show. Uh, this is one of my first collages. It's called The Shining Path, obviously, after the Mount, uh, Shining Path group in, in Peru. But it's also about the process of painting and creation and how it's an upward, upward curve, an upward, uh, not a curve, but right now it's an upward bouncing collage. <laughs> there. It's <This is> very <laughs> difficult. It's also a very small collage. I don't think it's 12 by 12. A lot of the imagery is derived from a, a French painting. There's a restaging of one of Rousseau's paintings in there, whom I really admire, and I thought he was at the peak of his powers when he did this picture. It's also about postmodernism and recombination of images. This is the French royal family at the time of the Revolution of 1848. Uh, there's Ho Chi Minh in there, a lot of scratching through, there's a lot of Xerox, there's a lot of transfer. Uh, there's Mylar in it uh, to give the feeling of the shining path, to objectify it. And uh, probably one of my most successful collages, even though it's little. And below this one is Imaginary Playmate. Uh, that's sort of self-explanatory. Again, the scratching through, using a generic icon, a Playboy bunny. This one of my most recent pictures is called Revisionism. It started out being a, uh, just a direct copy of a Russian painting from the 1930s, so a um, heroization of uh, of uh, Lenin, of course. And uh, once I got started on it, I said, hey, I can have a lot of fun with this. I didn't really want to paradise it, but I wanted to update it. That's why I call it revisionism. Uh, this figure was not even in, obviously, was not in the, uh, the original picture. And it ended up uh, like uh, Rene Magritte meets Edward Hopper, I think, in terms of color. I really yeah. like it a lot. It's also on polyester, which was sort of weird to work with because you have to keep painting and painting. And uh, so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to make the feeling that communism is still a vibrant idea, but uh, one does have to revise things. And also, it's about the personality of Lenin. That Lenin was not the Puritan saint that everybody, uh, that the cult of personality would uh, would have people believe. But he was a human being, right? But uh, well, never mind. I think the woman's about the degradation of communism. Anyway, okay, last collage. Um, women in Boxes, again, about oppression of women. Uh, it's a collection of uh, women that look like they're trapped. Uh, a lot of these are photographs. Again, Bullock's uh, picture. Also the pun on Box, of course. And uh, I think this is a Bill Brandt picture. I'm not sure. I'm not good with names at all, especially when I rip off people, because I don't want to remember them. Because <laughs> I want to revise them. Again, there's a lot of saran wrap on here. The feeling of enclosure is so multiple boxes, multiple rectangles, multiple bars, uh, boxes on heads. The Boxer Rebellion, maybe, someday. Oh, no, we forgot Helga. This is uh, called Oil-Eating Bacterium, and uh, it was based on, uh, on the uh, wonderful American victory in Iraq. Um, it's self-explanatory. You look the yellow ribbon. Uh, I've gone through this so many times I don't want to talk about it too much, except 
I think I painted the Nazi helmet gold, obviously, because American helmets look like Nazi helmets now. And that's no accident. And the gold is uh, obviously... Well, when you say that's no accident, what do you mean? <laughs> what do I mean? I mean, it's a conspiracy to make American soldiers feel like they're the Wehrmacht stomping over uh, really? Eastern Europe. But uh, I wasn't aware of that, but... It appeals it to their sense. fascist tendencies. Uh, and, uh, of course, they would say it's for better ear protection, but I... I I'm sure that's true, but I don't think that's the idea. And it's painted gold, obviously, because economic reasons are what the war thrived on, and that's what all that it was about. 100,000 people died because of uh, our desire for oil. And it's, uh, it's wrapped in a, in a bandage, obviously, for the feeling of death and uh, mummification. And there's a necklace of, uh, I don't know if the camera picks this up, there's a necklace of uh, spent up 16 bullets and uh, dice and dog tags and uh, various other paraphernalia of the military. Some of these are antique pieces. This is from Massachusetts from the Civil War. And there's some Hindu mythology in there, too. Impression so. of women, too. I don't really think so. I'm not sure, but I think so. Who knows what ideas lurk in the subconscious of crazy people. So that's the show. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.